Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 17, as Jim said, working through the book of Genesis. Uh, we've been at this for a few weeks, 21 weeks now, and continuing our trek through this incredible uh, book in the library that we have of our Bibles. So this is Genesis 17. We're going to read the whole chapter, so we need to just get right into it because we've got a lot of work to do. But if you want to get your copy of God's Word out, chapter 17 of the book of Genesis you know, normally when we're studying the Bible at our missional communities, we'll read a passage at least a couple of times and make notes of certain things, repetitions. So since we're just reading this once, let me clue you in to a few repetitions you'll want to pay attention to. Five times God speaks, the Lord says to Abram, five times in this one short passage. Look at all of the language from God of I will, I will, I will. And 13 times in this passage, the word covenant is going to be mentioned. So you might have a clue as to some of the emphasis from this passage. This is God's speech to his specific uh, elect person of Abram, going to become Abraham, appearing to him, speaking to him about his covenant. So just a few things to highlight and think about as we read through this. Genesis chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off 
from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with them. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So, as we read this long chapter, this is one, one narrative. We see Abraham introduced, introduced in this passage, right, with the appearance of God to Abraham. And then we see in chapter 18, a Lord's going to appear again at some trees, which is an interesting motif in Genesis. That's not for this morning. But so 17 is this one whole kind of narrative regarding this uh, further revelation on this covenant between God and Abram and then eventually the nations that would come from Abram or Abraham. But just so we're not jumping into that without some context, let's take a few minutes and situate ourselves again with the life of Abraham, right? Or Abram now becoming Abraham. This is why Jim and I, we have to constantly like correct ourselves. Abram, Abraham. It's this one dude. He's now going to get his name changed to Abraham. But if you look back in your Bible, right, we've got chapter 12 is this initial call of Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, right? God calls him out with a promise saying that he is going to make him into a great nation. There's the, the threefold blessing of a, a blessing and a nation and, and all the families of the earth. His name will be great. This blessing comes from God to Abram to leave this land. And so he does that. He, he leaves his, by faith, he leaves from the land of his hometown and marches out by faith into this promised land that God was going to give him. And then we see the, the famine comes along. They escape down into Egypt. Uh, that's where Abram lies about Sarah being his wife, says it's just my sister. That whole thing goes on. They then, after that event, get brought out. They come out of Egypt, headed back towards the promised land. Abram and Lot separate. 
And then Lot chooses to go over towards the cities of Sodom, gets in all kinds of trouble. And chapter 14 is there where Abraham has to go green berets kind of and go in and, and rescue Lot and all of his, all these people from uh, this military, these kings that were coming in to take them over. And then we have this interesting, so this is kind of this whole arc here. We meet Melchizedek, this incredible uh, a foreshadowing Christ-like figure uh, in, in Genesis in chapter 14. And then on into 15, we see again this re-promising of this covenant ceremony. Jim covered this well. Remember Genesis 15 where Abram cuts the animals apart, lays the halves out, and then God in a theophany as a, as a flaming torch and a burning lantern passes through the, the covenant ceremony on his own. Abram is put into a sleep. It is God's promise because there's nothing more sure than God himself. If Abram would have walked through that promise, it would have just ruined it. God himself goes through this, making this covenant to Abram, uh, uh, just kind of re-emphasizing uh, this promise to him and to his descendants. And Abram believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. And then we go into this, there's this great up and down because as soon as these great promises come from God, this great covenant ceremony, we see uh, Abram and Sarah uh, struggle with their faith a little bit. They, they decide we're not able to have children. Maybe the promise is going to come through uh, my handmaid. And so Hagar is given to, to Abram as his wife and they father a child named Ishmael. And that does not go the way they want it to. God, it is not, it is not the plan. The, the way that God is going to work his blessing is not going to come through Ishmael. And that's where we end then in chapter 16 last week, getting ready now for chapter 17. But it has been 13 years up to this point. It's been 13 years since Ishmael's been born. He's now a 13-year-old kid. So you can imagine the sort of resignation as we try to fly through that narrative, the resignation that must have been in the lives of Abram and Sarai. They've got these promises from God. They've got this reinstigation of the covenant in chapter 15 with this incredible uh, theophany of God showing up. But it's 13 years have gone by since they've had Ishmael. And maybe they're beginning to think, why can't, Maybe, maybe this was the wrong move at this time, but maybe God's just going to come in and, and, and going to accept Ishmael after all. But this is not God's plan. He shows up and speaks again with Abram. Now, as I said, notice how God-centered this passage is. This is monumental stuff in the history of the world. And sometimes um, it, we, we live in such a... Uh, such a, uh, we benefit so greatly from the effects of Christianity in our modern culture that we become so familiar with the idea of a transcendent, omnipotent God Almighty, El Shaddai, meaning God Most High, God Almighty, God of all strength and all power. This incredible God speaks to his people. And we think, well, yeah, that's how it works. But we don't, you realize how radical that is? <laughs> That this God, who we read in Genesis 1, creates everything by the word of his power. He speaks in the heavens and earth and everything is created by his speech. This transcendent, omnipotent, all-powerful, awesome God speaks to Abram, appears to him, 
communicates to him, is in relationship with him. It is mind-blowing that this is even going on. We've borrowed so much capital from Christianity in our modern culture that it really just becomes, it loses, we lose the wonder of what it would be that the Almighty God shows up to communicate with Abram. And we see all this initiative really on God's part and only reaction from Abram. If you can take a moment and really think, what does God owe any of us? He has made us. We are made in his image and likeness. God begins the whole world in its good state, as he calls it. And then as the maker of it all and making us, we rebel against him. We turn from him. And each one of us in our lives, clear from scripture and clear from lived experience, have invested in our own private rebellion away from God, have turned our back on him, have wanted to live our way and not his way. And yet God in his grace and his mercy pursues his people. We are not owed that. That is grace. That is mercy. That is astonishing that God would be a God of grace and mercy. There's nothing that we can obligate him. That denies grace and mercy. There's nothing we can do to obligate him to speak and to move on our behalf. And yet, here he is working his grand purposes, redeeming a people for himself on the global scale through this particular avenue of a man named Abram who will become Abraham. So, you know, this narrative, it's, it's actually fairly straightforward, I think. We don't need to spend a bunch of time working through how the story laid out, right? El Shaddai shows up, this name given to God, God Almighty. And Abraham is called to walk in obedience. Walk before me and be blameless. There's this call on Abraham to walk before him blameless. Now, we don't want to think of that as a as a sinless perfectionism that Abraham is being called to, but he's being called to walk in complete dedication to God. God in his mercy and his grace has called out to Abraham, has rescued him, has given him his promises, and Abram is called then to live in dedication to this God who has rescued him. Changes his name then from Abram to Abraham. Abram meaning exalted father. You can imagine, like, You'd think, okay, so imagine the story going down. Abram has to all his life call himself Abram, meaning exalted father. And he goes around, what's, you know, what's your name, Abram? Oh, exalted father. How many kids do you have? I, I don't have any. He, exalted father with no children. But then finally, 13 years ago, he has Ishmael. So he's, it's justifiable, exalted father. I, I've got, I have a kid. And God says, I'm going to change your name. Abram's thinking, thank goodness, can we not go get rid of this exalted father business? And instead changes his name to father of a multitude. <laughs> he makes it worse. Abraham now has to go around and say, I am the father of a multitude of people. How many kids do you have? Well, I've got, I've got Ishmael. He's 13 years old. And so he changes his name to father of a multitude. Changes Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah, from princess to Wait for it, princess. It's, it, 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 there's, there is some interesting theology behind the, the changing of the, of the way it's written there, God breathing and the certain Hebrew, but we're not going to get into that. Then he introduces circumcision, and then we have this immediate obedience from Abram. 
God says, do this. This is the sign of the covenant. You're to enact it upon you and all of your children uh, up to eight, eight days old. And immediately that day, Abraham goes in immediate obedience to God's call upon him. Now, no surprise, there is a ton we could talk about in this narrative. And a few ups and downs in the life of Abraham and a few years more later, this covenant that God has made to him back in 12 and 15 is further affirmed. Thirteen times this covenant word is used in five distinct speeches from God that he reiterates all that he's going to do for Abram. And so certain of God is God of fulfilling his promises to Abraham that he changes his name, right? He's so certain that this is what I'm going to do. When God makes a promise, it isn't like it's something he's going to do. We shouldn't speak of them as things he's going to do. It's things he has accomplished. They are as good as done. You are now father of multitudes. He calls Abram to change his name. So then we have this interaction. Abram falls on his face before God. He laughs. Thus, when uh, the next, when the child from Sarah is going to be born, they're going to name him Isaac, meaning laughter. And so that, and then the circumcision event goes on. That's, that's the narrative of the passage. And so we could do a lot of fun scholarly work. Like, I've, I've, if you really want to nerd out, like on the, the idea of circumcision and covenant ceremonies and all that it means, it's very fun. It's very interesting. Um, it's just also very studious and academic. And what... Does this narrative, so we want to try to bring this down to, okay, so we're reading Genesis 17 in our lives today. What in the world does this have to do with us today? And you want to, first of all, fit this narrative in the life of the original audience. And I think one of the ways to say the big idea from this passage, one of the ways to say the big idea from from this specific passage of Scripture is this, that Almighty God establishes a covenant with Abraham and his seed that produces real consequences in their lives. Almighty God, El Shaddai, establishes a covenant with Abraham and his seed that produces real consequences in their lives. And we see this, it's actually, this passage is framed by that idea, and I've emphasized them already here. We have right there in verse 1, this call that when, when, a, when God shows up to Abram and reminds him of this promise, he calls him to walk blamelessly, dedicated totally to God. There is a call that when God reaches out and calls out, appears to his people, when he speaks his promises to them, he expects those promises to make a real difference in their lives. There's a call for Abram to walk blameless before him. And then we see the immediate reaction that when, when Abram is given the command, Abraham is given the command to circumcise, he does it that day. He is obedient immediately. What we are seeing here is that when God grabs hold of you, you are his completely and totally. When God grabs hold of you, you are his completely and totally. And totally. You know, we have five discipleship outcomes that we like to stress around here at Missio. Uh, the first one's communion with God. The second one is walking by the Spirit. And that discipleship outcome, this, this outcome that we want to see, this measurable desire that we want to see in all of the people who call Missio their home, is that when we have communion with God, our first and primary outcome 
it produces a walk for God. Walking by the Spirit is not meant that we all of a sudden have some uh, metaphysical walk. <laughs> we walk by the Spirit. It is, it's, it's trying to get at the idea that what God does in our lives actually impacts us and that the Spirit impacts and affects the way that we walk. That when God moves in the hearts of His people, it actually impacts their lives. It is not an abstract, it is not a, it's not like reading a, a, a book and getting content, a, a history book, and like, okay, I see how all these things fit together. That's nice information to compute, but it doesn't really do anything in my life. That is not how God works in the lives of his people. Communion with God produces a, a, a walk in the spirit. It makes a real difference. It produces a walk for God. So a couple of months ago, I talked about this, ish, this, uh, this idea of an N-shaped religion or a U-shaped religion. And the N-shaped religion, so you think of the letter N, right? It's got the hump of it. It's like a hill. N-shaped religion is, is orchestrated or laid out such that we lift up to God our sacrifices, our good deeds, our whatever, our appeals. We lift up to God uh, some, some mechanism by which to convince him of our worth, of receiving his grace and mercy, and then he pours it down upon us. So it's N-shaped. We lift up to God, and hopefully if we do it enough or are impressive enough, then it will spill his grace and mercy, his goodness will come down to us. That's in-shaped religion. But what we see in this passage, and this is huge for Christianity, is not in-shaped, it is U-shaped religion. In that what we see is God coming down, God making the promises, God speaking to his people, God moving on behalf of Abraham, and then Abraham in response, lifting his life back up to God. That the Christian life is not lived as one to convince God to bless us. The Christian life is lived such that we see God's blessing coming to us in Christ. And then as a result of seeing this incredible blessing, we now live in response in joy to him. Because when God moves in a life, it makes a real difference. When God grabs a hold of you, when he blesses you like this, it, you are his completely and totally. This is what we see from Abraham's God, the God of grace. He appears to Abram. He speaks to God. God speaks to Abram. He calls Abram out with these gracious promises. And then Abram lives then in response to God's action for him. Don't get this backwards. Don't get this backwards. So many world religions will tell you that it is upon you and it is on your back to impress God or to convince God to love you or to convince God to forgive you or whatever it may be. If I can throw enough sacrifices towards God, maybe I can earn his favor. And Christianity is not that. It is God has moved on behalf of his people out of his pure grace and mercy. He is the one that has come down in the person of Jesus Christ, right? Christ at the incarnation came down, lived the righteous life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve, so that everyone looking to Christ in faith is saved, having done nothing but looked to Christ, is redeemed and brought, adopted into God's family, made one of his own, and then life is now lived in immediate response to that glorious truth. That the life we now live is not trying to trick God to bless us. It is blown away that God would bless us in Christ. That, that all that I need, all, uh, 
for your love is better than life. I have that God loves me. My life now is lived back in response to him. And that's what we see happening in this passage. This incredible reality of God's blessing falling upon Abraham and it producing in him a changed life. It producing in him something meaningful. Victor Hamilton in his commentary says that the demands of God must be interpreted within the context of the promises of God. God has promised this, and so the demands then flow back to him. Tucked away in here are a couple of really important comments, concepts that I don't want us to miss. The first is this, that to have, we've kind of talked on it, the first is this, to have faith is to believe in something that does cause you to walk in a different way. To have faith, to believe in the promises of God, to believe in these promises is to believe in something that does cause you to walk in a different way. Abraham is often spoken of as the father of the faith. And this platitude to have faith is thrown around. Or the statement that someone is a person of faith. What does that mean? What does that mean to be a person of faith? Is faith just mere mental assent to certain propositions. Okay, the Bible is is God's word. God made everything. Jesus uh, lived the righteous life, died the death, so that everyone looks to him is is saved and redeemed and given eternal life. Oh, abstractly, yeah, okay, great. I'll, I'll take that. That sounds good. And then go on my merry way. Is that what it means to believe? That is actually a very, very modern concept. That is, that is all of us enjoying our, and I'm not dogging on the Western mind, but that is all of us really enjoying our, our Western post-enlightenment mind. That there's, there's this, this reality that we can abstract things separate from reality. That we can just think about things and give mental assent to them, but they have no real impact in our lives. It's very modern. Actually, that is not the way faith works. And we see this in the life of Abraham. He does not say, you know what, God, those are really interesting ideas. Thank you very much. And march out on his life. They, this, this, what, these promises of God, they produce results in his life. They actually do something. For Abraham, when it comes to trusting God, faith is not a mere abstract idea. It is a lived reality, walking by the Spirit. This has always been the case for the people of God. Do those who follow God do so perfectly? No. Absolutely. And Abraham, we will see, even himself, does not walk perfectly, right? One day, we will have, we've been promised to be glorified and to be made perfect, but that day is not today. However, we have been called out of darkness into light. A Christianity that is affirmed only in theory, but never in practice, is not true Christianity. If it is not just answering the right questions on the multiple choice test, that is not true true Christianity. It's a modern ailment that we can have something in the abstract, but it doesn't make any difference on the ground or on the go. Karen's, is she in kids or something? Oh, dang it. That's her phrase. Uh, our missional community likes, uh, I was talking about something being on the ground difference, and she was saying, you mean on the go difference? She was like, it's, it's as you, it makes a difference as you go. And I'm like, hey, that's actually not too bad. I don't mind that. It makes a difference as you go. It's on the ground, on the go. Faith in Christ makes an actual difference. This is why part of our mission is to equip all of Christ's people to worship Him with all of their lives. 
when we hear the promises of God toward us, they change us. They change us. When the news of the gospel breaks through our unbelief and God puts a new heart inside of us, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are made a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This is the first important concept. But secondly, the second important concept that I want us to see this morning from this text generally is this. Abraham is given an obvious sign for remembrance of God's promise. This is now the third explicit time right in our narrative with Abraham that God has emphasized his promises to him. He's given now a covenant remembrance ceremony. He'll not easily forget God's promises to him from here on out. And I will, I will not make any jokes, but you can make them yourself. He'll not easily forget God's promise and this moment in his life from here on out, nor will his descendants. Now, we don't today hold circumcision as a religious observance for followers of Jesus today. Paul says clearly in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So when we read the Old Testament, right, we always want to see what the original audience would have heard, but we also want to see it within the larger scope of all of Scripture. The New Testament writers did have opinions on what circumcision was. So for many moments in the, like this in the Old Testament, they're type and shadow or pointers to something further that's going to happen. And God, through Christ, is going to establish a new covenant with new remembrances, with new ordinances. So it's important for God to, and, and why is this important? God gives reminders of his promises to his people because it is our default to leak the gospel. Uh, Christian writer Paul Tripp talks about this reality. We are leaky buckets. And what we will leak first and foremost is the gospel. We are prone to forget the promises of God. Now we're easy to remember all the things we don't like. It's, it's very easy to remember all of our dis disappointments, all of our discouragements, all the things we want to see different. Those are all very easy. We are hardwired to remember those things. Those things that worry us, they're very easy to remember. You don't have to work at remembering all the things you're worried about. They're just there. But the promises of God, we leak them. We forget them. We forget what God has promised to do for us in Christ. We have forgotten this God who holds all things in his hands and who has promised to finish the good work he has begun in us in Christ Jesus. We forget these promises. And so God institutes these reminder ceremonies that we might remember the promises of God. But circumcision isn't the right that's given to us today. So then what is? Well, uh, o. Palmer Robertson, who's a, a Reformed writer, and I don't go all the way as far as he does, but he, he makes an interesting statement that by being baptized, the Christian believer has experienced the equivalent of the cleansing rite of circumcision. By being baptized, the be Christian believer has experienced the equivalent of the cleansing rite of circumcision. There is certainly this connection we see in the New Testament with baptism and circumcision. But baptism is tied not to basic proximity to the gospel, but to the actual circumcision of the heart. There is an internal circumcision of the heart that when one is born again, when one places faith in Christ, and now 
Abraham's people were looking for this actual circumcision as well. A Jew is one who's one inwardly, not just outwardly. But there's this internal cutting away of the old man. There's this death that comes and new life is given. There's this internal spiritual circumcision that happens. To, to make this point, turn with me in your Bibles or get them back out if you've shut them already. Get your Bible back out to Colossians chapter 2 where Paul makes this point. We'll do some more in this next week, Lord willing, when we go through Romans 4. So we'll spend more time in this. But just this morning, uh, Colossians chapter 2, looking at verse 8 through uh, 15. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, being Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is not talking about a physical act. This is talking about a spiritual reality, a circumcision that is not done with hands, but that Christ himself does upon the believer, cutting away from them their old self, cutting away from them their sinful self. This circumcision is done not by hands, uh, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. For every Christian, the moment of repentance and faith, of being born again by the Spirit of God, of this spiritual circumcision, is a real cutting away of the old man. A circumcision of the heart happens in the people of God when they hear the proclamation of the gospel and believe. The old self is cut away. And this death and resurrection, this spiritual circumcision, is then portrayed in a very real and tangible way through the ordinance of baptism, where the church recognizes that this one has been born again as best as they're able to discern. The definition of baptism that we use comes from this nine marks, and it says this. It says, Baptism is the church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ meaning the, circumc the spiritual circumcision has happened, by immersing him or her in water and as a believer's act of publicly committing himself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. This is why we hear the command from Christ in Matthew chapter 28 to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. This faith that we profess is to be lived out. It is one, and one of those markers that we will point back to is that moment of real, tangible expression in our lives where we knew that God had worked in our hearts to save us. My church family recognized it. I knew it. I understood what God had done for me in Christ. And, the, and I was lowered into the waters of baptism and raised up to walk then in newness of life because when God moves in a life, it is not a change of just mere, just mere mental ideas. It is a changed life that we now walk as by the power of the Spirit in a way that honors Him. There are many other less formal ways that we can protect ourselves from leaking the gospel. Time in Christian fellowship is why we're big on and we push a lot, getting ourselves 
not just in the macro community of the whole church, but micro communities of gathering of believers, like having conversations and friendships around the gospel, time with other, other Christians, worshiping with other believers. In a very real way, the Sunday morning service is a, an opportunity for us to remember. It's a ceremony of sorts for us to remember the gospel, that we might not leak out the gospel. In our own communion with God, spending time in prayer, reading his word, preaching the gospel to ourselves, reading and listening to other edifying content, on and on. But the other ordinance, as we close, the other ordinance that is recognized in the new covenant that Christ has established is the ordinance of the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper. Eucharist is just a big fancy fun word for Greek for Thanksgiving, Greek word for Thanksgiving. It's a, it's a meal of Thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper, or communion. It is a family meal done in remembrance of Christ and his work on the cross, which is to say God and his promises, his people, his promises being fulfilled by Christ and his saving work on the cross. When we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the fulfillment of what Abraham actually believed God for and longed for. He, Jesus himself says Abraham looked for his day and longed and rejoiced at seeing it. Now this meal is not a meal for everyone. This is a meal of remembrance for those who have, have been spiritually circumcised, have, had their, have had been born again, trusted in Christ, who have gone through the waters of baptism. This is a meal uh, for the family of God. For instance, when we go to the fair, uh, we're not going to set up a booth and just serve communion for everybody that walks by. Like it doesn't become just this meal we just kind of throw out for whatever. It's a, it's a specific meal of remembrance. Those who are aware of what God has done for them in Christ are invited regularly to, when they get together with the gathered body of God, the people of God, to gather together to remember this work of God on their behalf. It's a family meal. It is a tangible, real-life reminder of the work of Christ on our behalf. There are promises of God tied up in this. That if we eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus in a worthy manner, trusting in the deliverance found in Jesus' substitutionary death, we will ourselves be delivered from death and given eternal life. God in his abundant mercy and grace has given us reminders, pointers, if you will, to keep ourselves centered on the truth of who he is and what he has done. They are reminders of all that he has promised to those who are his people. When we remember these truths, when we place our trust in them, how can they not reshape all that we are and all that we do? As the closing line of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, and my all. Let's pray. God, I, I ask that you would, as we head into a time of communion, give us eyes to see the goodness of your promises to your people. That Christ came to earth, lived the righteous life we should have lived. God, though we were dead in sins, he bore the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. So that every one of us, turning from our sin, confessing it as sin, looking to Christ as the all-sufficient Savior would be forgiven of our sin. Nothing owed to us. <laughs> we do not deserve this. This is your grace and your mercy. And God, would you give us eyes to see it? Would you give us hearts caught up with the joy of this reality? 
of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ, God, that we might not forget any of your good promises to us in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.